And on the basis of the letters, you can say, Elizabeth and I probably had something to do with this terrible crime. Anybody who hears it thinks, oh God, that it's gotta be true. Nobody could make that up. And on top of this blood is a human hair. And because it's on top of the blood, it must have been left by the killer. It's clear there were two people walking in the blood at the crime scene. And my confession is that I went there by myself. Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of our podcast. What would be a trial without the accused taking the stand? Joining me in the studio today are Judge Ralf Gieserüber and Jens Söring. Critics have accused Jens Söring that he publicly portrays himself as a victim of the justice system and that no one in the media's editorial offices is questioning his statements. Reason enough for us to get to the bottom of this accusation and allegation today. Mr. Zering, the accusation that you're a liar dogs you persistently. Do you find that understandable? Or do you think that this has become a personal matter for some of those following your case? Well, I can understand that people question my truthfulness. Um, decades ago, I lied to the police and gave a false confession. And that's the truth. But the whole case started with lies. And in view of that, I'm not surprised that people take issue with my credibility. I've gathered a few public quotes. For example, some have said, personally, I believe he did it. And I believe that he was rightfully convicted in a fair trial. Others have said that your story about the huge miscarriage of justice is nothing but a convenient lie that makes it easier for you to cope with your guilt feelings. Ralf, we're here to consider the whole case from a legal point of view. At what point do these statements about Jens' credibility become potentially slanderous? How far can people go legally speaking when they call Jens a liar? Well, that depends on the context. As Mr. Sering said, it's understandable that there are primarily critical voices. After all, Jens lied to the investigators over a long period of time. Given this background, it is not surprising that people today do not believe him or that they are find it very difficult to do so. Ralf, you're putting Mr. Zöring on a trial in this episode today. So let me hand this over to you. Yes, thank you very much. First question. Until your release in 2019, you repeatedly claimed that Elizabeth had confessed the murders of her parents to you on the night she committed the crime. But since you returned to Germany, you said in various interviews that you don't know who committed the crime since you were not physically present. Why did you change your story? Um, quite simply, because in the United States, I was subject to the US Constitution with a First Amendment, which guarantees an absolute freedom of speech. But after my release, I was deported to Germany. 
And here I'm subject to the German constitution called the Grundgesetz. And uh, here they do not have absolute freedom of speech. Uh, freedom of speech is limited by the rights of the people you speak about. In this case, that's Elizabeth Hazen. So I cannot speak as freely here as I could in the United States if I want to obey German laws. And I do. I'm a German citizen. I live here. I want to follow German laws. So um, I have to adjust what I say to follow the law. At your trial, you claimed that Elizabeth confessed to you that she had killed her parents. Why would a young woman commit such a heinous crime? What could possibly motivate Elizabeth to do that? Well, she answered that question herself in 2016 in a newspaper interview. She said that the actual true motive for the crime was her mother's sexual abuse. She said in this newspaper interview that her mother, Nancy Hasem, sexually abused her for eight years. And that was the actual true motive. She lied about that at my trial. She admitted that in the interview. But uh, in 2016, uh, she said that. And that would, of course, also explain what uh, some police have called the overkill at the crime scene. The extreme brutality of these crimes makes sense if they're committed by a victim of a sex crime taking revenge against what she perceives to be the perpetrators. The forensic evidence we heard about in this podcast points to at least two perpetrators at the crime scene. At your trial, you claimed Elizabeth Hazen was one of the killers. Aren't you her most likely accomplice? Um, on a purely sort of logical basis, on first glance, um, that might make sense. But in fact, it's not physically possible. Um, at my trial, the manager of the Marriott Hotel, where we were staying on that weekend, testified. And he said that room service in our hotel room was ordered sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. And both the prosecutor and the defense accepted that. Nobody's questioned that. And the hotel manager had no reason to lie. So whoever was in that hotel room um, has an ironclad, al ironclad alibi. Um, after my trial, my lawyer contacted the manager of one of the cinemas showing the movies, um, the, the specifically Stranger in Paradise um, film. And uh, he was able to determine from the serial numbers on the tickets that those tickets were bought between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. So again, somebody had to be in Washington, D.C. to purchase those movie tickets. In combination, the hotel manager's testimony and the statement by the movie uh, theater managers about the tickets provides an ironclad alibi to one of the two of us. The question is, which one of us remained behind in Washington, D.C.? And I'm saying it wasn't me. At the crime scene, there's clear forensic evidence of a perpetrator other than myself. In the bar area, the police found an old plum brandy bottle with unidentified fingerprints and a shot glass with unidentified fingerprints. And that's significant because all of that was just a few steps away from Derek Hasem's body and Derek Hasem had an elevated blood alcohol level. So, somebody was there at the crime scene drinking with Derek Hasem, who was not me. So, if you were not the other perpetrator, 
who do you think might have been? Well, first of all, it's never the job of the accused to solve the crime. Um, that's the job of the police. I don't have detectives to solve this crime for Virginia. Virginia should have done that. Um, but of course, I have some ideas. And I think the most important thing that people need to know is about Jim Farmer's birthday. Jim Farmer was a fellow college student of Elizabeth and mine at the University of Virginia. And he was her drug dealer. And Jim Farmer was later convicted um, um, of a drug crime. And he has meanwhile passed away. But um, that's what he was, according to Elizabeth Hasem. And on March the 30th, the night of the crime, it was his 20th birthday. He lived in Lynchburg, which is directly adjacent to Bedford, just a couple of miles away. And he had a birthday party for his 20th birthday in his hometown. And it's my belief, my opinion, um, that Elizabeth wanted to go to this birthday party of Jim Farmer's and score free drugs because it was his birthday. And I think she went there and then she met somebody there and I have some suspicions of whom it might be. And then they went together from there to the house. That's what I think. And it all comes down to the crime happening on Jim Farmer's birthday. Want to learn more about Jens Söring and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Söring's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.suring-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. So let's look at the letters you exchanged with um, Elizabeth three and a half months before the murders. There are many disturbing passages. In one you write that you had the dinner scene with Elizabeth Hazen planned out. There was a lot of blood found in the dining room at the crime scene. And according to your confession, you attacked Derek and Nancy Hazen at the dinner table. How do you explain that? Basically, coincidence. At that point, when I wrote that letter, Elizabeth and I had been in a relationship, I think for less than two weeks. We had just become a couple. And, you know, the way it wor usually works is that when you start dating a girl, um, you're going to meet her parents sooner or later. And that usually happens at a meal. And it could be a dinner or it could be a lunch. In fact, it did happen just two months later. I met Derek and Nancy Hasem over lunch. So there was no dinner scene. There was a lunch scene when I met my girlfriend's parents for the first time. Um, it's important to understand that I confessed falsely to attacking Derek and Nancy in the dining room at the dinner table, but that is clearly not what happened. Uh, on the crime scene photos, you can see that there's a lot of blood on the floor in the dining room. So something happened there. But it was not a physical attack. Because when you look at the crime scene photos, you can see the wine glasses and the candlesticks are still standing upright on the table. And on the mantle, the fireplace mantle behind Derek Hasem's chair, there are cards still standing there. And the chairs haven't been knocked over or anything like that. So if a fight had taken place there, all of that would have been knocked down, would have been knocked over. The dining room would have looked very differently. Something happened there, but it was not a physical fight. It was not an attack. 
In another passage, you write, you have not yet killed perhaps the ultimate form of crushing. How do you explain that statement? Um, the letter itself explains it. The very beginning of that letter says very clearly that it's about two articles in the German magazine Der Spiegel, which deal with World War II. And the author, Rudolf Augstein, um, wrote that every person has it within him or her to become a war criminal. And this letter has nothing to do with the Hasems. It's about this article, which can be found online, by the way, um, still today. And the question, can everybody become a war criminal? And in discussing this issue in the letter, I write about George Orwell's novel, 1984, and he uses this image of crushing. And that's why I use that word, and that is explicitly discussed in the letter. So um, to use this as some kind of evidence that um, I wanted to kill the Hasems is ridiculous. This is teenage philosophizing about World War II. Um, the important thing to understand about these letters, both Elizabeth's and my letters, is that they do have disturbing passages. There's no question. And on the basis of the letters, you can say Elizabeth and I probably had something to do with this terrible crime. But the letters do not show you who did what. There's no indication at all. So as far as the question of, you know, who was responsible for these murders, the letters don't really help. All they do is show that we had something to do with it, but not what each role was. In your confession, you said that Nancy and Derek Hazen were against your relationship with their daughter and that this was your motive for killing them. Later, you denied this. How do you explain this contradiction? Um, easy. Elizabeth and I made it up. It's simply not true. Uh, Derek and Nancy Hazen were not against our relationship. We just talked about the letters. And these letters contain many, many long passages by Elizabeth Hazen about how much she hates her parents that they controlled her life and weren't giving her enough money and stuff like that. But nowhere in these letters, at any point, does she ever say that her parents were against our relationship. So if this was such an important subject, if this were actually true, it should be somewhere in the letters. The other thing to remember is that I had a three-week trial and dozens of witnesses appeared against me. But not one witness, nobody, testified that he or she ever heard Derek or Nancy Hasem say that they don't like me or that they're against our relationship. The prosecutor would have been you know, searching for witnesses to that, but he was able to find nobody. Nobody was able to confirm this motive at my trial. And the reason is Elizabeth and I made it up. It's just not true. The Odometer on the rental car you and your girlfriend rented that weekend matches exactly the distance to the crime scene. When you were asked about this during a later interrogation, you couldn't give a plausible explanation on the mileage discrepancy. What do you say about this today? Um, I am sure that the rental car drove from Washington to D.C. Uh, to Bedford to Lynchburg um, the question is, who was in the rental car? 
and the odometer does not tell you who was in the rental car. It made the trip, but we don't know who was in the car based on the odometer reading alone. Um, what's important to understand about this car is that at the crime scene, the police performed a luminol test on the grass right in front of the Hasem's house. Luminol is a chemical that detects blood traces. And in the grass between the front door and the driveway, the police found really big uh, shoe prints in blood in the grass using luminol. This indicates that somebody left the crime scene with still bloody feet and then got into a car and drove away. But uh, Chuck Reed, who also appears in this podcast, performed a luminol test on that rental car and there was no blood in the rental car, which doesn't fit with the bloody shoe prints in the grass. I think that rental car made the trip from Washington to DC to Lynchburg to Bedford but it did not actually go to the crime scene. I think that rental car went to that birthday party of Jim Farmer's, and then another car was used to go from that birthday party to the Hasten's house. And that would explain why there's no blood in the rental car, even though there are these bloody shoe prints in the grass. You claim to have come up with the idea of making a false confession on the very night of the crime in order to protect Elizabeth from execution in the electric chair. Allegedly, you believed you enjoyed diplomatic immunity through your father. How could you have thought that you would not be prosecuted? Well, if my father had worked at the German embassy in Washington, D.C., I would have enjoyed diplomatic immunity. Um, but my father worked at the consulate general. And what I didn't know is that um, I was not covered by diplomatic immunity when my father only worked at the consulate general and not at the embassy. Um, the fact is I had my own German diplomatic passport and it contained an A1 diplomatic visa from the US State Department. So it, was, it made sense for me to think that I had some kind of coverage, some kind of protection um, uh, through my father's status as a diplomat. Uh, my father was stationed for a while at the Consulate General in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and in 1982, when I was 16, the Japanese Consul General there was arrested for hit and run and then injuring a police officer while fleeing the scene. And um, that was a, it went through all the newspapers. It was a really big deal. The Japanese Consul General's name was Ryo Kawade. And um, the way it turned out is that he actually did not get diplomatic immunity, but he was deported to Japan and then punished there for the crime he committed in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's what I thought would happen to me, that I would have a form of protection through my father's status and that I would be sent to Germany and there I would um, be subject to German laws. And uh, as an 18 year old, I would almost certainly be judged as a juvenile and would get a maximum sentence of 10 years. During an interrogation on October 6, 1985, you told the two investigators that diplomatic immunity no longer existed. How do you explain this statement? Um, pre precisely on the basis of what I just said, um, uh, f full diplomatic immunity, I thought was a thing of the past, but I thought I had a limited form of protection 
just like that Japanese Consul General Ryo Kowade, um, who was deported from Atlanta, Georgia in 1982. Your story that you were a nerd in love who was willing to sacrifice himself for his murderous girlfriend strikes many people as highly improbable. How do you respond to people who say no one is dumb enough to give a false confession to such a horrific crime? Um, I can understand that. It is, it is not a very sensible thing to do. But um, what has been learned since my trial over the last few decades is that false confessions happen much more frequently than people think. Um, 25 to 28% of all wrongful convictions are based on false confessions. Really famous cases, the Central Park Five jogger case. They also confessed to a crime they didn't commit. There's a researcher in England called Gisley Good Johnson, who determined that with teenagers, and remember at the time I gave this confession, which I say is a false confession, um, I was 19. And with teenagers, the leading reason to give a false confession is the wish to protect somebody else. And that's exactly what I was doing back in 1986. I thought I was protecting somebody else and that was the reason I gave a false confession. And the strange thing is, is that it's not that unusual. It's not that unusual based on the research, even if at first glance, it seems very improbable and yeah, strange. At your trial, witness Donald Harrington testified that he saw you at the funeral service of Derek and Nancy Hazen. On that occasion, he said he observed wounds on you, a black eye and bandages on your hands. Did you have these injuries at that time? Absolutely not. Donald Harrington lied. He committed perjury. I had no injuries. What people need to remember is that um, I spent that entire week prior to the funeral service with all of Elizabeth's brothers and her sister. And we were staying together in a house with friends of the families, uh, the Hazen family, the Masseys. So they had almost a week where they saw me all day for many hours a day. None of these people saw these injuries. None of them testified about, testified about this at the trial. The police had observers at the funeral service. The police observers also didn't confirm or corroborate Donald Harrington's testimony. Um, there's also nothing in the police file, no witness statement from Donald Harrington. And the original lead investigator on the case, Chuck Reed, uh, gave a statement uh, in 2018, I believe, uh, where he said that Donald Harrington's testimony was a, quote, total lie, unquote. That's true. And it's not me saying it, it's Chuck Reed saying it. What Harrington said at my trial was a total lie. He committed perjury. You claim that in the 13 months between the crime and your arrest, you never at any time asked Elizabeth what really happened on the night of the crime. To many people, this statement seems extremely implausible. Why did you never ask Elizabeth for details? I know that's really hard to understand. Um, I myself, you know, shake my head when I think back on those days. Um, how could I? How could I? Um, 
the fact is I did not want to know. Um, I knew that if I asked Elizabeth for details, I would hear things that I did not want to hear. And then I would have to act and our relationship would come to an end. And I did not want our relationship to end. I wanted it to go on. So I closed my eyes and I closed my ears so that I didn't learn anything that I didn't want to know. And uh, maybe you have heard of this kind of situation in your work as a judge. Um, in many cases of sexual abuse um, uh, within a family, it's, it's quite common that other family members know that the sexual abuse is happening, but nobody says anything because if they speak the truth aloud, then everything falls apart. The family falls apart. It's a big catastrophe. So it's easier to close your eyes and ignore the horrible reality. And that's quite common in sexual abuse cases, I believe. Um, and in a strange sort of way, that's what was going on with me. Um, I just didn't want to face the horrible truth. So, yeah, I closed my eyes. At the first interrogation on October 6, 1985, you refused to give fingerprints and other forensic samples. However, Elizabeth had done so. Shortly thereafter, you both left the United States. It looks like you were afraid your fingerprints and perhaps your blood and footprints would be found at the crime scene. How do you explain your refusal to give forensic samples? I didn't want to help the police track me down later when we were on the run. Um, just as a reminder, my fingerprints were not found at the crime scene. My DNA wasn't found at the crime scene and the shoe print at the crime scene was too small to be mine. So I was not worried about that. Um, but I knew that Elizabeth and I would be spending the rest of our lives on the run together. And if, the, if I gave the police my fingerprints now, They could use that to track me down, maybe even decades later. So why help the police? I decided not to give them my fingerprints. Elizabeth had given the police her fingerprints six months earlier in April. So it was too late for her. But in my case, I could still avoid helping the police by providing my fingerprints. Um, it's interesting that um, in this context, um, some people... Uh, point out that I wiped my fingerprints away or off um, the apartment where I was staying. And they say that this shows my guilt. Um, that's interesting because in the travel diary that Elizabeth and I kept while we were on the run, um, it clearly say, says that Elizabeth also wiped down her apartment to get rid of her fingerprints. And it's funny how um, the same action uh, is, is used to accuse me Uh, but apparently is not used um, to accuse her, even though we both did the same thing. Why did you both flee the United States on October 12th? We didn't want to get arrested. We didn't want to go to prison. We wanted to stay together, and we would prefer to live our lives on the run than to go to prison. And at that point, um, I did not know that Uh, the crime I had committed was in fact not even a felony. At that time, the crime that I had actually committed, which is called accessory after the fact, uh, was a misdemeanor in Virginia. But I didn't realize that. 
I thought I was in this basically as deep as Elizabeth was. I had covered up a double murder. It was, you know, yeah, it made sense to think we're in this together, so we're both leaving together, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together on the run. You mentioned already the travel uh, diary. In an entry dated October 12, 1985, Elizabeth wrote that your fingerprints on the coffee cup during the interrogation on October 6, 1985, solved the case. How do you explain this entry? Um, I don't have to explain it because Elizabeth did that for me. Um, it's very strange. Um, um, Elizabeth has told so many lies, but on this one particular point, she actually told the truth at my trial. This can be found in the trial transcript on June the 14th, 1990, on pages 163 and 164. Elizabeth testified clearly at my trial that this specific entry about the fingerprints on the coffee cup are a lie and that this lie was intended to deceive and manipulate me. So there's nothing to this entry. Elizabeth admitted it. It's not true. She was trying to manipulate me. From June 5 to 8, you were interrogated in London. On the very first day, you accused Elizabeth of setting up an alibi for you. In doing so, you accused Elizabeth of a particularly serious crime. In Virginia, aiding and abetting before the crime is considered murder in the first degree. Years later, you claimed you were trying to protect her then-girlfriend during the interrogations. How can that be reconciled? At no point did I ever promise to protect Elizabeth from prison. My plan was to protect her from execution in the electric chair. And uh, my plan on that first day of the interrogations in England was to get the police to believe that she was in Washington, D.C. And the best way to do that is the story with the alibi. That ensured, in my mind, that the police could only charge her with first-degree murder and not capital murder, and that would save her life. In Virginia, aiding and abetting before the crime is first-degree murder, and that's what she was convicted of. But it's not capital murder. You can only be charged with capital murder if you're actually at the crime scene. So that's what I was doing here. By telling the police Elizabeth, Elizabeth was creating an alibi, I made sure that she would not be charged with capital murder. She would not be subject to the death penalty. Your confession contains many details about the crime scene that only the perpetrator would know. Doesn't this prove that you are the killer? No, it doesn't. Um, you can get details from the crime scene by actually committing the crime, or you can get details from the crime scene by speaking to the actual killer. And my testimony at my trial was that I got this knowledge from speaking with the actual killer. I was not at the crime scene. And my confession contains accurate details because I spoke with the actual killer, but it also contains mistakes because I wasn't there. And 13 months passed between the night of the crime when I learned these details and my interrogation by the police. And during that time, um, yeah, I forgot some things because I wasn't there. During your confession, you expressed concern to investigator Ricky Gardner 
about running over and a small dog while driving away from the crime scene. From his point of view, this story is evidence of the truthfulness of your confession. In a TV interview, he said that something like that couldn't be made up. Can you explain to us why Investigator Gardner might be wrong about that? Simple. Um, the whole story was made up and it was a literary technique that Elizabeth and I used when telling the police our stories to convince them of our truthfulness. Uh, remember in those uh, letters that you mentioned earlier, there are long discussions between Elizabeth and I about literature. We both considered ourselves writers. And writers use a technique called a telling detail. This is a detail that is so off the wall that anybody who hears it thinks, oh God, that it's got to be true. Nobody could make that up. Elizabeth used that in her stories that she told the police. She told the police that when I arrived in Washington, D.C., I was naked except for a bed sheet covered in blood. Um, she told the police that she then cleaned the car with Coca-Cola. These are details which are definitely not true, but which sound convincing. They're telling details. The uh, uh, rental car was examined with luminol. There was absolutely no blood in that rental car. So the story about the bedsheet and the blood is not true. The cleaning uh, person, the cleaning staff at the rental car agency said the car was spotless. So the story about cleaning the car with Coca-Cola is also not true. But these stories sound convincing. And my story with the dog was one of these telling details, um, which was deliberately put into my story, into this lie, to convince the police to believe me. And clearly, in Ricky Gardner's case, he bought the story. At your trial, Elizabeth testified against you. By that time her trial was over, she had already received her sentence of 90 years. Why wouldn't Elizabeth tell the truth at your trial? Why would she lie? Because she had something to gain. Um, remember, Elizabeth was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Nine zero. But just five years after my trial, in 1995, she was allowed to have her first parole hearing, which I think is a pretty good reward for testifying against me. Um, at that parole hearing, um, the prosecutor, Jim Updike, uh, testified in her favor. There was a newspaper article about that. And he said that he could not have convicted me without Elizabeth Hasem's help and that she organized the evidence for him and laid out the whole case for him. Um, for a prosecutor to go to a parole hearing and to support the release of the applicant is extremely unusual. It's a very strong indication that Updike was rewarding her for helping him put me away, get me convicted. It's a deal. And um, that's not unusual in the American criminal justice system. Now, Updike kept his side of the deal, but Elizabeth did not actually get parole. Um, and the reason for that is, is that the judge wrote a letter to the parole board to say that she should never be released early. But Elizabeth couldn't know that, and maybe the prosecutor didn't know that either. Fact is, both sides of this deal kept 
to the deal. She testified against me, and as a reward, the prosecutors supported her release. It just didn't work out. You consider the hand, the bloody sink at the crime scene to be particularly important. Why? Um, that's true. I do consider it important. They, uh, in the bathroom, somebody washed off blood in the sink, and there's with luminol test was conducted on the sink. There's a lot of blood in there, and on top of this blood is a human hair, and because it's on top of the blood, it must have been left by the killer or killers, and that hair was compared to both of the victims, Derek Hasem and Nancy Hasem, and it was compared to me. And all three of us are eliminated as a source. It wasn't the victim's hair, and it wasn't my hair. Supposedly, the hair was never compared to Elizabeth. And you can believe that if you like. I don't. But that's the official claim from the prosecution side. But it's a fact. That hair was left by one of the killers, and we know it's not my hair. It was compared. So you also consider second sneaker print at the crime scene to be important. Why that? Um, well, there's controversy about the DNA uh, test results, but there's no controversy about the shoe print because anybody can see it with his own plain eyes. Um, for decades, everybody thought there was only one shoe print at the crime scene. That was the shoe print LR2, sneaker print. Um, And that is definitely too small to have been left by me. Um, but what's interesting is, is that it took till 2018 for an investigator called Richard Hudson to go through the old crime scene photographs and find a second shoe print. And this one had a different treadwear pattern than the first one. The first one, LR2, has a wavy pattern. And this other sneaker print has a V-shaped pattern, completely different. And the Hasems were not wearing sneakers. They were wearing different kinds of shoes. So these shoe prints were definitely left in the blood by perpetrators who walked around the crime scene while the blood was still wet. And again, you don't have to be a DNA scientist to understand shoe prints. Shoe prints, it's clear there were two people walking in the blood at the crime scene. And my confession is that I went there by myself. It's not true. The shoe prints prove that my confession is not true. That cannot be what happened, because they're two different sneaker prints. Let us talk about your confessions. In 1986, you repeated them three times. Can you explain me why? Easily. Um, the first confession was the one I gave to the American investigator, Ricky Gardner. And I gave that um, without the advice of counsel. I was not allowed to see my lawyer. And um, I thought... I had a limited form of diplomatic protection through my father's status as a vice consul. And I made that confession, I gave that confession, a false confession, on June the 8th. It was the next day, on June the 9th, that I finally got to see my lawyer. And he told me that I did not, in fact, have any kind of diplomatic protection at all. And he told me that I'd basically committed suicide because I had pled guilty, more or less, I'd confessed to a capital murder. Uh, four days later, on June the 13th, I was indicted for capital murder. And now I faced the death penalty, the same death penalty that I had saved Elizabeth from with my false confession. And at that point, my lawyers focused on trying to save my life from execution. Their first plan 
was to try to get the British courts to downgrade the charges on which I was supposed to be extradited from England to the US. They wanted to downgrade the charges from murder to manslaughter by reason of diminished capacity, or diminished responsibility. And for that purpose, they had me talk to two psychiatrists to get a diagnosis, a psychiatric diagnosis, that would justify downgrading the charges. And um, I repeated my confession to these psychiatrists. Uh, by the way, in a legal sense, that does not count as a confession that could not be used at my trial because it was a statement to psychiatrist. But it is true, I repeated my story. Um, the British courts did not accept that. They decided that the American legal system should decide whether I had committed murder or manslaughter. They didn't want to deal with it. So my lawyers then made a second attempt to save my life. They tried to have me extradited from England directly to Germany because I could have been tried in Germany on the crimes that had happened in America. But the German prosecutor, the German government, needed some kind of evidence to support a German extradition request. You cannot file an extradition request without evidence. And the German prosecutor had no evidence against me. I had to provide him that evidence in the form of another confession. This would be the third confession. And I did that on December 30th, 1986. I repeated the story again for a German prosecutor so that he would have something on which to base his extradition request in order to save my life. Um, and then that failed as well. Um, but um, the, the British courts decided I should be sent to America and not to Germany. But that's the reason I gave that statement to the German prosecutor. I was trying to save my own life from the electric chair. Why did you wait until 1990 to say you were innocent? Why didn't you claim your innocence in 1986? For, for the same reason I just explained, um, I had been charged with capital murder. And uh, my lawyers told me that we would have to go to the European Court of Human Rights. And in order to file an appeal at the European Court of Human Rights, you have to pass a legal standard called seriousness of risk. If you look at the later judgment of the European Court of Human Rights, in my case, paragraphs 93 to 98 deal with the seriousness of risk factor. It means that um, the court has to find that there really is a grave danger Uh, that I will be executed unless the court intervenes. And my lawyers told me that if I gave any indication at all that I might be innocent, then the European Court of Human Rights would just wash their hands of it. They would say, you don't need our help. If you're innocent, go back to America. You'll, you'll get a not guilty verdict because you know American courts make no mistakes. And I did this on the advice of counsel. I said nothing for three years on the advice of my lawyers. And this was brought up at my trial in 1990. And there's a long discussion about this in the trial transcript where my lawyer uh, explained this to the court. Um, to protect my case at the European Court of Human Rights, I was not legally able to say anything about being innocent until the case at the European Court of Human Rights was over. Why didn't you request DNA tests between 1990 and 2009? Because a forensic examiner at my trial lied. Um, this man's name is Elmer Gist. 
he testified at my trial in 1990 that the blood samples to be DNA tested no longer existed. They had been used up in the serological testing. And of course, there's no reason to disbelieve him. I believed him, my lawyers believed him, and you, you, there's no reason to file a DNA test if the blood samples no longer exist. There's no point to it. And then 19 years passed, and surprise, surprise, after 19 years, I get mail. And I open the envelope, and inside the envelope are the DNA test results that were performed without my filing an application through the post-conviction DNA testing program on the samples that we thought no longer existed. And that's not my fault, and it's not my lawyer's fault. It's the fault of Elmer Gist Jr., who lied at my trial when he said that the samples didn't exist. And Elmer Gist Jr. has a record, a history of doing this sort of thing. He was also responsible for the wrongful conviction of a man called Ed Honecker, who was um, uh, cleared in 1996. Ed Honecker is in the National Registry of Exonerations, and Elmer Gist Jr. put him away for a crime he didn't commit, just like he did with me. So why aren't you requesting new DNA tests today? Oh, I am. I am. I wrote the prosecutor, the new prosecutor in Bedford County, um, just last year, repeatedly asking for DNA tests. What you have to understand is that in Virginia, the prosecutor can order DNA tests anytime he wants to, just by picking up the phone. He does not have to go to court to request DNA tests. He can do it because he's the prosecutor. On the other hand, somebody like me, somebody who was convicted of the crime, I do have to go to court and file a petition. But the Virginia law on requesting DNA testing is extremely strict. Um, and you have to think of it a little bit like if you file for Social Security, you know, the first thing you have to prove, you have to meet a condition. The first thing you have to prove is that you're unemployed. Otherwise, you don't get Social Security. And it's a bit like that with the DNA testing law in Virginia. Um, you have to meet conditions in order to request testing. And the conditions are that the samples have to be clean, pure, uncontaminated. Um, then you have to have chain of custody. And the test results have to prove your actual innocence. In 2022, I exchanged emails with the new prosecutor in Bedford County, Wesley Nance, who's actually a pretty decent guy, turns out. And um, I've published these emails with his permission. And Wesley Nance explained in great detail and at great length that the samples are contaminated, they're not pure. And the reason for that is, is that for decades, people have been handling these samples without gloves. Because decades ago, people didn't know that you had to wear plastic gloves to handle uh, samples. People just didn't know that. They're doing it now, but for the, you know, for 20 years more, people have been handling that stuff barehanded. So the samples are completely com contaminated. And the next problem is, is that there are no logbooks for many, many years for the evidence chamber that they've got there, where they keep the evidence. So there's, first of all, legally, there's no chain of custody, which means that even if they were to perform DNA tests, you can't bring it to court because there's no chain of custody established. 
But beyond that, because there are no logbooks, you don't know the names of the people who walked in and out of that evidence locker for all that de all those decades. So there's no way to figure out which DNA profiles are related to the crime scene and which DNA profiles are just reporters and lawyers and investigators handling the stuff barehanded. And that leads to the third thing. DNA tests would not prove my innocence in terms of the Virginia law. And uh, it has a very strict definition of what actual innocence is. And the prosecutor, Wesley Nance, explained to me that the test results also wouldn't prove my actual innocence. Now, of course, I didn't believe him because he's the prosecutor. So I asked my own lawyers to look at this very closely. And they said, he's right. This will not work. You cannot get a petition into court because you don't meet any of the conditions. There are three main conditions and you don't mean any of them. And I still didn't believe him. So I actually wrote an independent lawyer out of Charlottesville called Brian Jones and I asked him, is there any way to file this petition even though the evidence is contaminated, there are no logbooks, no chain of custody, and arguably they don't prove my innocence? And he confirmed it. So I've done everything I possibly can. It is not legally possible to file a petition for DNA testing. All I can do is ask the prosecutor, please do it. And I've done that many times. And he said he's not going to do it. But that's all I'm able to do. Okay, thank you. This was the ninth episode of our podcast, The Case Against Jens Suring, A New Verdict. Judge Ralph Guiz-Ruber discussed with Jens Suring the questions and accusations that have stood against Suring as unanswered for decades. In the next episode, Judge Ralph Guiz-Ruber gets to the bottom of the question of whether Yen Suring would be charged and convicted again against the background of today's knowledge. The verdict. The President of the Regional Court of Hanover decides. <laughs>